Good morning, everybody. My name is Dan Halleck. I'm the lead pastor. I'm so glad you guys are here. Hey, uh, as we're starting this fall, we're kind of reviewing our church purpose statement on the front of your bulletin. You'll see, uh, you can follow along with me. It says, Cedar Home Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered worship, community, service, and multiplication. Last week, I talked briefly about worship, and this morning, I, uh, I am to talk about community. Alan already did an excellent job. I don't know if I could add much more to that, but um, maybe what I would say is, as we've seen in the book of Acts, God's design, the mystery of the gospel that we read about in the New Testament is that God would take people from all people groups and make one new person, one new people group called his church. And specifically in Acts 2.42, we see how the, the first Christians in Jerusalem shared a common life together. And it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And so essentially, Jesus saved us into a family so that we would not live this life on our own. Um, you read all throughout the New Testament how the church is described as a body interdependent on one another. We are each a part, we have an important part to play. All of the one another's in the New Testament assume that we would share a common life together. <coughs> Excuse me loving one another, living in harmony with one another, greeting one another, comforting one another. All of this assumes that we are in fellowship with one another. And here at Cedar Home, we want to connect you and your family and your kids with other Christians so that you can make some Christian friends who you can do life with and bear one another's burdens with. We do this through Sunday mornings, through church-wide events, uh, various men's and women's ministry events or prayer nights, serving together, and, and as you already heard about through our community groups, which is the most regular way that we do this throughout the week. So uh, you have uh, two flyers in your bulletin about community groups, and um, one lists our current community groups, and it's you'll see that there's new ones being added each week, and then also um, why we do community groups, and then on the back side, how to lead a group and how groups get started. So I, I, I encourage you to look at those things uh, because we want to help you get connected here and into the lives of other Christians. So that's in your bulletin. Please, please read it. This morning, though, we're gonna we're gonna continue to worship the Lord through. Uh, the sermon here, and we're going to jump back into the book of Acts. If you've got your Bible with you, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 21, verse 27. Last week, um, we kind of reviewed this, but I'll do it one more time if, if you're new with us. Uh, We are reading this book of Acts, which is a historical account from the first century written by a physician named Luke, who was tasked with writing a historical account of how Jesus' followers spread the good news of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. And last week we saw how the Apostle Paul traveled to Jerusalem, and upon the uh, highly recommended suggestion of the 
the Jewish Christians there, Paul participated in a Jewish vow at the temple. And he did this in order to maintain peace and unity among this diverse group of Christians, which included Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It, he did this as an act of worship to God. It was not something he was doing to earn God's favor. We know that because throughout the New Testament, it teaches over and over again that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So the interesting thing is that even in Paul's attempt to be uh, maintain unity and to have a humble spirit and to serve the church, what we see and what we're going to see is that the forces of evil quickly twisted Paul's action and used it to attack him and to attack the gospel. And this morning we're going to see how God can use really difficult situations in our lives to give us a platform we might not otherwise have to point others to the Lord and to speak of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So before we read this, let's ask the Lord to help us. Dear Jesus, we thank you for uh, helping us get out of bed this morning and uh, to this building this morning. We thank you for the other Christians around us in this room that you've, you've put here who also want to love you and to love others more. We thank you that we have a place uh, where we can come and learn more about you and also where if we, if we don't even know what we believe, God, that we can come and seek your truth. And we just ask during this time now that you would center our thoughts and our hearts upon you and your gospel. Holy Spirit, please convict us, please encourage us, please build us up however you want and according to your will, Lord. We ask that you would guide our minds and our hearts now from evil. Help us to see you and to love you and your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start by looking at Acts 21, verses 27 through 30. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they'd previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. So... While Paul was at the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem performing his vows, a group of Jews from the region of Asia, they spotted him. And they, they were most likely from Ephesus or the surrounding area because they would have known Paul. He spent three years there ministering among them. And these Asian Jews had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost festival with other Jews from all over the known world. And like many of the Jews in the towns that Paul had visited, these Asian Jews hated Paul and his message. And so these men ran over to Paul. It says they put their hands on him. They began to then stir up the rest of the crowd, saying, men of Israel, help us get this guy. This guy's traveling around the world. He's preaching against the Jews. He's preaching against the law of Moses. He's preaching against our temple. 
He even desecrated our temple by bringing Gentiles into the holy places of the temple. And these accusations, of course, were untrue. These Asian Jews viewed Paul and the Jesus he preached as an attack on Judaism rather than the fulfillment of Judaism. And, and yeah, Paul had been seen walking through town with his Gentile Christian friend Trophimus, one of the men who had come with him from Asia to bring an offering for the poor. And because he was from Asia, Trophimus, these other Jews from Asia recognized him. But Paul hadn't taken Trophimus into the temple and defiled it like these men said. It just says they were walking through the street together and so they assumed they were in the temple defiling it. And that was a lie. And so even before Paul gets the chance to speak for himself, the whole crowd of people believes what these lying men are telling them. And verse 30 says that the people then, this crowd ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple into the street. We've already seen many times in Acts and the Gospels how dangerous people and mobs of people can be when they rush to judgment and condemn others without hearing them out first. This, this happened to Jesus, and here it happens to Paul again. And you know, and in our day and age, with all the media and information and social media networks and technology that we have access to, we are just as, if not more, in danger of acting the exact same way. Believing lies about people, believing rumors about people, con condemning others in our thoughts and in our speech, even uh, without even hearing their side of the story. And, and as a general rule for all people, whether you're Christian or not, it is wise to always reserve judgment about a rumor or a situation or a person until you get the facts from all the parties involved. Even if the person or person giving you information is somebody you know and trust. Because look at what the crowd did. They aligned themselves quickly with Paul simply because, or sorry, they, they aligned themselves quickly with the Asian Jews simply because they knew the Asian Jews better than they knew Paul and Trophimus. But they didn't. And this is why it's extremely dangerous to act this way because the people in the crowd were actually condemning themselves by condemning Paul and Jesus. One of my favorite Proverbs about judging situations wisely is Proverbs eighteen seventeen: The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. The one who states his first case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Spreading lies, believing rumors, uh, rushing to condemn others, these are tactics that Satan has used for thousands of years and continues to use to attack and divide and persecute Christians and local churches. So in this body and for our community of Christians, Holy Spirit, please guard our hearts, <laughs> guard our tongues. God, please guard our church. Guard us as individuals from spreading lies, from believing rumors, from rushing to judge others in our hearts and with our actions. 
please, this is why Jesus said, make us wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So this, this angry mob, it quickly rushes in to kill Paul when who of all people comes in to rescue Paul? The Roman Empire. So let's keep reading verses 31 to 39. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, per permit me to speak to the people. So remember this, at that time the, uh, in Jerusalem, in all the surrounding area, all of it was occupied by the Roman Empire. And, and just outside the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, the Romans had a large military base right next to the temple. It was called the Fortress of Antonia, where thousands of Roman soldiers in Jerusalem congregated, did business, ate, they slept there. Well, as you got this mob out in the street trying to kill Paul, the word quickly comes to the fortress where the uh, tribune is, who was one of the head officials in charge of the Roman troops. And the tribune grabbed a bunch of soldiers. He said, let's go check this out. They run out into the street where Paul was being beaten. And when the crowd saw the tribune coming out, they stopped beating Paul, it says. And the tribune then arrested Paul, put him in chains, and began asking him some questions. But it says that the crowd was so loud, so violent, he couldn't even hear Paul. And so he said, we got to go back to the barracks. And so the tribune brought him back to the barracks as they're walking into the barracks where the soldiers are physically carrying Paul to try to get him through the crowd. Paul uh, says something to the tribune in Greek. He asks the tribune, can I speak for, speak for myself? And the tribune is confused because Paul is speaking in Greek in an articulate Greek way. And the tribune, you see the tribune just like the crowd had assumed that Paul had done something wrong, the tribune had assumed that Paul was somebody else. He had assumed he was this Egyptian man who had led this large revolt against the Roman Empire. But Paul said, no, it's not me. I'm just a Jew from Tarsus. Would you please allow me to speak to this angry crowd? And the tribune allowed him to. So let's see what Paul tells the crowd now, starting at Acts 21, verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush 
he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Let's stop there. So, so Paul uses this opportunity here before this angry crowd to, to give a short version of his life story. Specifically, Paul shares his testimony of his life before he met Jesus, as well as how he met Jesus. And I'm not going to explain or elaborate Paul's story very much because it, it pretty much speaks for itself. He was a devout Jew. He hated Christians, killed them, and then encountered Jesus. Now, the only detail I want to briefly explain here is Ananias' command to Paul to rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. In the New Testament times, trusting in Jesus for the first time or calling on Jesus' name to wash away our sins is, is, was often coupled with the command to be baptized. They went hand in hand. They were like two sides of the same coin. Some people read verse 16, though, and think that it's saying that the being baptized is what washes away our sins. And so they'll argue that you must be baptized to have your sins washed away and go to heaven. But, but reading verse 16 that way, is, it's incorrect because it takes that verse out of the context of the rest of the New Testament and Bible. Scripture teaches that neither baptism nor circumcision, nor any religious work is able to wash away a person's sin. 
A person's sins are washed away when he or she places his or her trust in Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's what it means here in verse 16, to, to call on Jesus' name in a saving way, to place your trust in the Lord Jesus to wash away your sins and to reconcile you to God. Um, in the first century, a person was always baptized very soon after he or she trusted in Jesus. And we've, you know, Acts has testified to this over and over again. We've seen it. So if you have trusted in Jesus, then obey Jesus and be baptized. This same command goes for you, too, because Ananias is just repeating Jesus' uh, great commission. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus here, then this command applies to you, too. Do what verse 16 commands you to do. Call on Jesus' name to wash away your sins and then be baptized because he's done that for you. I'd love to talk to you after the service if you want more information about baptism. But Paul's story here in these verses about how he became a Christian, it climaxes in one event. Encountering the resurrected, living Christ. And I wanted to take that and, and have you, if you're a Christian, reflect on that a little bit. If you are a believer... If you've encountered Jesus in a saving way, if you believe the gospel, then you too have experienced a life-changing event, an, eternally, uh, an eternal life-changing event. Uh, do you remember when you encountered the resurrected Christ in a saving way? Some, some of you can remember that exact moment when you encountered the living Christ in a saving way. Others of you can't remember the, the exact moment that you encountered him. You can maybe point to a, a season of your life when you encountered him in a saving way. Well, just like Paul, Christians, you have a story to tell others too. And often in the Christian world, we call that story your testimony. Uh, that it's the story of your conversion in a sense, coming to Christ. And, and one of the things I want to challenge you to do in the next few weeks is to write down your testimony if you've never done that. Take some time to reflect on your life. First, reflect on your life before you encounter Jesus in a saving way, before you trusted him to wash away your sins and to reconcile you to God, before you knew the Lord. How did you at that point view the world? How did you act differently? How did you live differently before God made you born again through faith? And then the second thing I would do is, is, is identify how and when did you hear the gospel of Jesus in a way that led you to trust this resurrected Lord? When, when did you meet Jesus Christ in a saving way? When did he make you a new creation? Maybe you heard the gospel a hundred times before one time for whatever reason, you got it, and you wanted to trust in Jesus. Not because anybody told you to, but because you knew you needed the Lord to save you. And then the third thing is, how has your life changed or gone since trusting in Jesus? How do you view your life and the world differently now that you're trusting in Jesus, what have been the highs and the lows that God has carried you through? 
Because it is definitely a wrong thing to say that, well, trust in Jesus and your life is going to be cake, right? Rather, we, we add on to our initial, initial testimonies many testimonies of how God has carried us through highs and lows of our lives. That's how you tell your testimony. That's, a, that's one way in three simple steps. Talk about your life before trusting in Jesus and then what was that moment or season that led you to turn to the risen Christ? And then talk about how you approach life and view the world differently now that you are a Christian. See, testimonies are really special. One thing that makes them special is that they're all different. You have, you have different circumstances, different parents, different houses. All of our stories are different. The interesting thing is though that even though they're different, they all revolve around the same central point, and that's the resurrected Jesus Christ. And even though testimonies can be very subjective, that, that in itself is not a bad thing because it is your story. That's what you're just doing. I mean, you're telling people your story, your experience. And whether people agree with you or don't like it, it doesn't really matter because you're just sharing what has happened to you. But when we tell our testimonies also um, as a tool to tell about the gospel of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection for us and the hope we have in him, our testimonies become very powerful weapons in the hands of the Lord. Because even though how we recount our stories might change, um, the gospel that we communicate doesn't change. The core that it revolves around, our lives revolve around, is not subjective. It is objective. It doesn't change. It is uh, the truth upon which our stories of faith are built. The gospel, it says in Romans, is the power of God for salvation. So when we share our stories, we don't only want to talk about how, how, how God's great and has made a difference in our lives. That's, that's wonderful. But also get to the heart of the matter, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And why do we have hope in that? Why does that give us hope? Um, so if you've never written down your testimony, I encourage you to do that because it's a really valuable and edifying exercise. And if you've done that before, I would encourage you to keep going back, revising it, and adding to it new ways that God has worked in your life. Because it's, it's not only a worshipful thing to do for yourself, but it's a wonderful way to be prepared to share your story with other people. Um, if you're in a community group or if you regularly meet with a small group of Christians, I strongly encourage you to take time, make room for sharing your testimonies with one another. Because what it will do is it will help your group grow together quickly. And it's going to also give you practice telling your story um, of, um, in a kind of a safe environment. And... Our, I'll just tell you, our community group has done that, and boy, it brought us together real fast because it requires that you be real. You can't fake it. It's like, okay, this is getting deep real fast. And so, but I think that's what we want, and I think that's what our uh, society lacks is, a, is, in a large part, is a sense of realness 
we're pretty good at being online, being fake, um, having a thousand friends on Facebook and one friend in real life. But where is the realness in our lives and how does that interact and mingle with the realness of other lives? That's where the power of a testimony um, comes in and the power of sharing our stories about Jesus and that he's not just this thing I heard about in Sunday school, but he's my God and I revolve my life around him. Um, And I would encourage you parents and grandparents or aunts and uncles, have you told your kids or grandkids your testimony? Have they heard it? Like, not do they just know that you're a Christian and go to church, but have they heard your story? Be brave and tell them is what I say because they need you to point them to Jesus and they need to see in you that Jesus is real in your life. He's not just some place you come to hear about on Sunday mornings. And so as we look at this passage today, Paul is in a really difficult situation. He's... uh, He's defending himself before this crowd of angry people who want to kill him. And at the very same time, we can see God's sovereign hand here bringing Paul to this moment so that Paul could tell his testimony and through it share the gospel in a really powerful way to many non-believers. And in the same way, Christians, God has given you your story to tell others. God might bring you to a really difficult situation in your life, a situation you don't want to be in, not only to pour out more grace and to sustain you and help you through that, but also to bring you to a place that when you share your testimony and your hope in Jesus Christ in the middle of the darkness, it makes the light of Christ shine even brighter through your story. And so in verses 1 to 16, Paul tells the Jewish crowd how Jesus saved him. And now Paul is going to tell the crowd how Jesus sent him. So let's look at uh, verses 17 to 22. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, They listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So Paul says here that after he became a Christian, God sent him to the Gentiles. And and when he says that before this angry mob, that is the point, you'll notice, when the crowd gets angrier They raise their voice and they cry out for Paul to be put to death. They stop listening to him. So that is because the Jews could not accept the mystery of the gospel that God would pursue the Gentiles and make one new church made of both Jews and Gentiles. And as we've seen several times in Acts, one of the distinctives of biblical Christianity is that it is extremely diverse, racially ethnically and socioeconomically. 
And God wants us to maintain unity in Jesus as a church while celebrating our ethnic differences. And then today's passage also shows us one thing that God intends to do with Christians. God does not merely save us as individuals, and that's kind of the end of the story. We just kind of play the rest of our lives until we meet God. God God doesn't merely save us and then sanctify us until we die, and that's kind of the end of the story. Instead, what we see over and over throughout the Bible is that Jesus, God, saves his people to send them to others with the gospel. That's the pattern. Saving and then sending. And God is a God who sends his people out. We see this all the way back in Genesis 12, where God saves Abram in order to send him. Right? Genesis 12, 1 to 3 says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the Lord sends Abram away from his country to a land where he would be the father of a great nation. God blesses Abram in order to be a blessing to others. That's what it says. And all the peoples on earth would be blessed through Abram because it was many generations later through the line of Abram that Jesus was born and came to save people from all nations through his death and resurrection. What did the Lord do with Moses? He saved him and then he sent him. He sent Moses to Egypt to free the Israelites from slavery. What did Jesus do with his disciples? He saved them, and then he sent them out. And Christians, if Jesus has saved you, he has sent you. You don't need to wait for a specific calling or place for God to send you. Rather, Jesus has already sent all of us, if we're believers, into our homes as mission fields, and our neighborhoods, our cul-de-sacs, our streets, our schools, our workplaces, we are his good news ambassadors, is what the New Testament teaches. You have the same things Paul had at your disposal. You have the gospel, you have your testimony, you have the Holy Spirit, and in addition, what Paul uh, didn't have in his hand was a complete copy of the Bible. But Christian, you are sent to love others in our community and to tell them about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might, not lo- might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, the church, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, Christians, are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a gospel. So Christian, God has not only saved you, he has sent you. When we leave this building today, we're being sent out as his ambassadors of his good news to everyone outside these walls. What a privilege. God plans to use your life in the gospel words that you speak to eternally save all types of people, both religious people and irreligious people. And we should always remind ourselves that we can be so confident in Christ and in his power because what does he say? This is, he says this right before he gives us the great commission to go out to the whole world. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. You're going with the spirit of the living God in you who made the people you're talking to and who can make them born again. And the spirit makes his people born again through the declaration of the gospel. It is the seed planted into the soul which brings new life. And he does this at just the right time. Maybe not the first time people hear it. Maybe not the tenth time they hear it. But eventually, God's sheep will hear the voice of the shepherd and believe and follow him. And so, we must go to religious people and irreligious people alike. Paul was a religious person. And, and, and so we must love all people and pursue spiritual conversations with others, and we must pray, pray, pray for the Holy Spirit to anoint our conversations. Because this is the reality. There are very good, very nice, very friendly, very religious people who are lost and who need to be saved by Jesus. Your salvation is not dependent on your niceness. There's a lot of great, kind people. There really are. Your salvation is based on what you make of Jesus Christ. And religious and irreligious people need to, to hear that. I have friends from Denver who God has just sent to Utah to minister on a college campus to reach Mormon students for Jesus. That's their mission field. They're like, we're going to go to Utah as missionaries. And most Mormons, this is my personal uh, testimony or whatever, most Mormons I've met have been incredibly nice and incredibly moral. But they're lost without the Lord Jesus, just like I'm lost without the Lord Jesus. Religious people from all religions need to know that their religion doesn't save them. Jesus saves. And then I was thinking about this. How often do I come across irreligious people or immoral people 
and like explicitly immoral, like people who would not even try to obey God or care about God, right, but want to pursue their own way explicitly. How often do I come across people like this and not even say a prayer for them? I pray that me and, and you and our church would be a praying people, that we would do what Paul says to pray without ceasing. Obviously, we can't pray for everybody on earth, but I would encourage us to be alert to different people that God puts in your life who you can just say a one-sentence prayer for in your mind when you see them or think of them. I started doing this in high school when I just walked into the building, just seeing somebody and say, Lord, I just pray for that person. I don't know what they need, but I pray for them. Or Lord, please save that person. Sometimes I even pray, honestly, for <laughs> like musicians and comedians and podcast hosts who I like, but who are enemies of God, just like I was once. I want to see them in heaven. And so I pray for them as God leads me to. You know, of all the people that we see in the media and in Hollywood and celebrities, how many of those people love Jesus? I don't know, but as a Christian, I want to pray for them. So to make this even, you know, more concrete here, you know, for us, like when you're standing at the store in line or you're waiting to pick up your kids at school or you're having a conversation with someone on the sidelines of a game, pr just pray in your mind, Lord, please save this person. Please, please show them their need for you. And Lord, please use me or somebody else to, to tell them how they can be saved through faith in Jesus. God works powerfully through our prayers and through our testimonies, and he most powerfully works through the gospel message of God's kindness and love and mercy for sinners in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I want to share again with you one of my favorite quotes by 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. He says, Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Christians, we are the ones God has saved and sent. And just like God used Paul's testimony and Paul's words to change the world, the Holy Spirit will use your testimony and your gospel declaring to change people's lives and eternities too. And until Jesus returns, this is, this is the game plan for the church. We as a church want to love the Lord together in community together. We want to love others together. We want to go out together. Not every spiritual conversation with you have with somebody has to be one-on-one. -on -one. You can talk in groups of people. You can mingle your Christian and non-Christian friends. You can talk about things that, that matter. You can talk about God and politics, believe it or not. Be careful in politics. I'm, I'm, I'd push you to talk about God. Um, that's, that's me. Um, but this is a reality. If Satan had it his way, what would he want the church to stop doing? He wants to stop us from talking about Jesus. He wants to stop us from 
telling people we have a living hope. Jesus Christ, who's alive and reigning, who died for us and who loves us. He wants us instead to do what these people in this passage did, to spread rumors about each other, to hate each other in our hearts and to divide us. But as the church, may God convict us of these things when we see them happening in our own lives and in our church. And, may, and thankfully, we have the gospel. We, we can confess our sin and repent and turn to Jesus as the object of our faith. And I just pray that we would seek to love people well together as we tell the world around us about our resurrected and reigning Lord Jesus. Amen? All right. Let's, uh, why don't you go ahead and stand up? Please, and let me close our time in prayer. Lord Jesus, we just thank you uh, for your great mercy and grace that you show to us, Lord, for the hope that we have in the gospel, that um, those who trust in you have their sins removed from them, and become the imputed righteousness of Christ, have the, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, Lord, that we um, are adopted into your family, that we're declared not guilty of already of sin because we're new creations in Christ, and so we can approach life and death not with a fear of condemnation, but with love and joy and hope of knowing you and then of eventually seeing you and knowing you forever. I just pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us, Lord, to um, see the opportunities around us, to point to you, um, to people near and far. Help us not to be ashamed of you in the gospel. Help us to overcome our fear of people. Help us to just take this day and say, Lord, I want to pray for people because they're lost. And just like Paul was appointed, you've appointed me. You've appointed me to salvation, and I don't want to use this day just for nothing, Lord. I want to use it for your glory, and I want to obey you. So, Lord, please help us. We thank you so much, God, that we can do this with the spirit of freedom and grace, knowing that we are not saved by our ability to convert others. We are saved by grace alone, through faith in Jesus alone, by an awesome God we want to tell the world about because he saved us and made a difference in our lives, and we want to see him reach into the lives of others and make a difference and transform their lives and see them in eternity, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for being here. Hope you have a great day. All right.